0: Does anybody know what the message is going to be about today? You might have heard it from the songs. Because those are actually strategic that David puts together, right? We're going to talk, we're going to talk about the incarnation today. And, of course, this is Christmas season. Last week we talked about the peace of God, the peace of Christmas. that, And we, we layered that out last week. And, and really, this is still really a part of our discipleship in the Gospels. What disciples, what those who come to Christ who need... Um, They need peace. You need peace from God. That only comes through Jesus. But we're going to look at the incarnation. Anybody who's new to Christ, anybody that you disciple, really needs to understand the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, that sounds like a big word, but we're going to break it down. But I think this is a great season to talk about that doctrine of the incarnation. Very important, actually. Um, And I would actually actually encourage us with this. If you know the doctrine of the incarnation... There's a small chance you'd ever find yourself in a cult, right? Small chance, right? Small chance you've ever be given to some kind of heresy if you understand the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. Now, Martin Luther is quoted as saying this the mystery of the humanity of Christ that he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding, meaning that it's not above understanding doctrinally, but it actually is kind of it's 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 kind of just Mesmerizing the fact that God, God the Son, Eternal God, comes and takes on human flesh. Now, before I kind of go in, and we talk more about this. This idea of doctrine. That word doctrine. Sometimes we hear people hear that D word doctrine. Their first thought is like, "Oh, this is gonna be boring. Like, you know, you know, this is just terrible." The, you you said the D word, and this is just um, staunch, wooden kind of things. I would tell you, doctrine's a good thing. I can't tell how many Christians I've heard say, well, we focus too, you know, you focus too much on doctrine. No, doctrine is actually a good thing. You're not going to be able to turn all these scriptures, but doctrine's not a curse word. It's a really good thing. I'm going to mention a couple of scriptures. You probably will not have time, but the scripture say saying Ephesians 4.14 that we have to be, warns us not to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the way, the word doctrine means teaching what you teach, what you believe. 1 Timothy 6 3 warns us about different doctrines. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with, um, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, even t- Timothy, even Paul mentions to Timothy that doctrine actually conforms your life to godliness. Titus, um, in, t- in Titus 1 9, a, a pastor, an elder must hold fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching of so that he may be able to exhort with sound doctrine and approve those who contradict it. Sound doctrine is needed even by pastors. Paul tells Titus in 2.7. In all things, show yourself to be a model of good works in purity, with purity in doctrine. Titus is told to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. Doctrine is not a bad thing. Doctrine is a good thing. You know, um, I would encourage you. If you don't have a, any kind of systematic theology or any theology book that teaches ...on organize, organizing doctrine, do it. Um, you can go out into the bookstore today. Um, I'm sorry. We're supposed to call it Resource Center. And you can go out here and... Um, and ...you can get uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. In fact, if you're a man... Um, ...every second and fourth... Uh, ...Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock... ...we actually study Systematic Theology. If we'd love for you to jump in... ...we'll meet this coming Tuesday at 6 o'clock. Um, man, we'd love for you to come... So we study theology. We study doctrine. We're studying doctrine. Doctrine's an important thing. It's not a bad word. It's not a cuss word. It's not something boring. In fact, if a person has weak doctrine, then they'll have weak beliefs. And if you have weak beliefs, then you're going to easily conform yourselves to the world. So those who have great doctrine usually have great walk in godliness. So that doctrine's not a bad thing. Let's look at the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, right? The doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. Now, if we're going to be turning to many different texts, um, your, your fingers may or not be able to keep up with it. So let me just put you in one, if you don't want to turn to a lot of different things, because you probably won't have a lot of time. Just go to John 1, and J- John 1.14 will be the main text. I'll reference many other texts. You may not have time for this. But first, I want to paint the need for the incarnation. Why do we need the incarnation? We'll come to John 1, 14. That's our main text. Why do we need the incarnation? Simply put, we need the doctrine of the incarnation. We needed this. We needed Jesus to come and take on human flesh. We needed this because first and foremost, Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the very thing that God warned about in Genesis 2 happened. You will die. That's the very thing. And so death plunged upon all men. Romans 5:12, 12, four, Uh, 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. We need the incarnation of Christ because Adam and Eve, specifically Adam, plunged us underneath the fall. And we need a way to get out. We need a way that our sins can be forgiven. We need a way that we can be restored back to God. As a result of his sin, we will all die. If If we do not believe in Jesus, we will die in our sins. So the incarnation is first needed because man is set to death. He'll die physically. He'll die spiritually. He'll die and suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. So we need the incarnation. And, um, and in a minute, we'll talk more about exactly what that word means. But we need it. There needs to be a remedy. Jesus is that remedy in his incarnation. Now, number two, there's the promise of the incarnation. As soon as Adam and Eve fell, right... Y'all remember Genesis 315? That's the first gospel promise. Where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He says to Satan, uh, he says that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um and so there is a curse that's that's God pronounces, and basically the 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 gist of the curse is there'll come a day when God will bring incarnation, will bring basically um he will bring about the Savior who will make the death blow to Satan's head. Satan's, everything that Satan did to influence the curse of the fall, uh, that will be overcome by this one that will come into the world. It's the promise that God has made. It's the needed promise. So the incarnation is, number one, it's needed because of the fall. Number two, it was promised immediately after the fall. Number three, it was prophesied all through the scriptures. Uh, we're, we're not going to look at different prophecies, but the one you probably know the best... and which this would be a scripture that would go with many of our songs that we sang this morning. But most of us know Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will bear a child and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So even the Old Testament prophesied. So there was a, there was a need for this incarnation of Christ. There was a promise of the incarnation. There were prophecies of the incarnation... Now, look at John 1.14. Here is what the actual incarnation is. John 1.14. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, and I think for the Christmas season, if there was one verse to memorize, it would be this one. If there was one verse, if you say, give me uh, uh, one verse that helps me understand the doctrine of the incarnation, this would be it. Although most of the time when you get what's called systematic doctrine, which is your systematizing, organizing doctrine... Most of the time, there's many scriptures you take in to do that. But if you wanted one scripture that you could say, help me understand this doctrine, you could go to John 1.14. Here's what John 1.14 says in your scriptures. The word and the word. Does anybody know who the word is in this? Anybody know? Jesus. Jesus. There you go. That's like Sunday school answer, isn't it? It's Jesus. He became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth that's the this is the perfect verse that encapsulates the understanding of what is the incarnation of Christ in John 1:14 notice it says and the word speaking of Jesus became flesh now there's a latin word that we've already said incarnation it comes from the word incarnatio right incarnatio and so let's break down that word incarnatio in Carnasio. Carnasio means meat, right? In means in, into meat. Let me illustrate it this way. We were in Wisconsin years ago. Um, We all love queso, right? Y'all love queso? Y'all like queso cheese, right? You know, there's many different types of queso. There's queso, which is cheese with Rotel dip in it, right? Velveeta cheese with Rotel dip. Anybody ever had Velveeta cheese with Rotel dip, right? Um, Very good. That's and, and I will tell you before we moved to Wisconsin. That's the only kind of queso I knew. It was either velveta cheese with rotel in it, or it was velveta cheese with meat in it, right? And if you had Velveeta cheese with meat in it, you would call that some. Sometimes you would call that queso, you know, chili con queso or something of that nature. And when you had that, it was actually what you're saying is there is there is meat inside this cheese, right? It is. And incarnated cheese, right? There's like meat is in right there, right? Now we we're in Wisconsin. They did something really revolutionary, and we've got what Dan and Carol were in Wisconsin. This is something revolutionary. When we got to Wisconsin, they didn't use Velveeta cheese. When they did queso or you know chili con carne or queso with meat, you know what they used? Cream cheese, right? How revolutionary this was! You take cream cheese and you melt it down, then you pour the meat inside of it. Right? Have you ever done this? Is it, does anybody make their queso that way? No, Danny Carroll, do y'all make queso that way? Like the, the you, use no other you use Velveeta when there's no other choice. Well, that's how they made it. Now I will tell you, when you have queso, you can have just cheese alone, but that's really pagan queso, right? If you're going to have queso that is Christian queso, it needs to have incarnation. It needs to have carne in it. It needs to have meat in it. So when we say amen, finally I got an amen. So when you say the incarnation of Christ, what we're saying is this. Eternal God, God the Son, takes on meat. He takes on flesh. He comes and lives in a human body. He comes and takes on a human nature, not just not just the um, blood and, and not just the not just the muscles, but he takes on a complete human nature. Lives a fully human life. In fact, lives such a human life that he qualifies to be our substitutionary representative. He qualifies to undo what the first Adam does. The Bible actually calls him the second Adam. So the first thing you understand when you look at John 1 14 is, and Jesus, the Word, became flesh. He incarnated. He uh, took on, put on the human nature. He took it on physically. He lived completely as a man. And in, as a man, taking on meat, right? Taking on flesh, taking on human nature, he was fully tempted. Just as Adam was. Just as we are. He fully obeyed God so that he could fully sacrifice himself as our sin bearer. So the promise of the incarnation gets fulfilled in that that first part of John one fourteen, And the word became flesh. He incarnated. That's what we mean. It means in meat. Incarnation. If we know this doctrine, we will not be overcome by different heresies. We, And in fact, if you take... Take most cults that are out there. This is actually somewhere they mess around with the incarnation, typically of Jesus. They mess around. They'll say things like, well, Jesus was created by God as an angel at some later point, and then he took on flesh. Nope, that's heresy, right? Or they'll say, well, he didn't really take on... Um, a human, human flesh, human nature. He was basically kind of a ghost, and he just appeared to be a complete human. That's also heresy. If you really understand the incarnation of Christ, Then you can fight against any heresy that actually exists out there. So we see the we see in John one fourteen the promise that God had made. It actually came true. You see it in John one fourteen. But then you see the promise of the incarnation lived out in John one fourteen. Look back in John one fourteen. Not only did he, not only did the word become flesh, but the word dwelt, what does it say? Among us. When you look at the word in the original languages, you get the word of tabernacle. You start understanding it. Tabernacle. God tabernacled among us. It points you back to the Old Testament where you start to see, you start to see that Israel is led through the wilderness. And there was a tabernacle. Remember when they set up camp, you would have each of the tribes would be on each side of the tabernacle in the middle. The tabernacle where the presence of God would communicate with them. And by the way, what's really interesting about the tabernacle, have you ever noticed, if you read Exodus 25 and 26, have you ever noticed that the outside materials of the tabernacle were very normal construction material, but on the inside, what was the material that was overlaid with everything on the inside? Anybody remember? Gold, right? Gold. You start to see gold. Just denoting the glory that was on inside of the temple. To point forward to the glory that would someday come. To point forward to the God dwelling among us. The glory of God that actually was going to live among us in the incarnation. You see John one fourteen, And he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Remember John's pointing to the glory that was on the inside of the tabernacle. The glory that's on the inside of the temple Glory is on the only uh, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? This is the miracle of the Incarnation um, that, that not only is God among us, but we get to act, He actually dwelled among us, so much so that we get to actually know what He's like. I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were gone, we actually found a cabin and we put it, the, the place where we went was about a 30 to 40 minute from what's called the creation ark. And the Creation Museum. How many of y'all been to this already? The Creation Art Museum. So we just have not got a chance to go. But it was really interesting. The Ark was my favorite just for the fact of you could go inside and and just get kind of a spatial feel. You could go and dwell inside. Not like sleep there. Although they did say that youth groups could come and sleep there overnight as kind of a youth trip. Wouldn't that be fun, right? Um, but you could... Well, I remember when we went to the Ark, you saw this big, huge boat, right? And you're... It's the exact dimensions of what Noah's ark was and you could go inside of it and they had, they had, they had all the models of how this could plausibly have been handled. And I remember once I got inside and began to experience it, it's almost as if when I look at the Genesis account now about the building of the ark and the flood, it's almost as if I had, I had something that I could kind of wrap my hands around. What had happened? I dwelt among the the ark i got to understand it i got to see it i got to feel it i got to touch it i got to get all the representation of it what's awesome about the doctrine of the incarnation is it teaches us that god came and dwelt among us right he came among us we know what he's like just like i could go now and i could got to see an ark and see what this ark was like i In the similar fashion now, we actually know what Jesus is like because he has revealed himself. He has dwelt among us. He has shown forth the glory, the glory of the inside of the tabernacle that just the priest got to see. The glory that only the high priest got to see once a year back in the Holy of Holies. We now get to see the inside of that glory shown in the face of Jesus Christ. God came and dwelt among us. And he says specifically, and we have seen his glory, glory of oh, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a beautiful thing we've got. You know, people say all the time, Well, if I if it you know, if I only had the physical presence of God, you know, from the pillar fire by night, or the cloud by day, or got to see the miracles. If I could just see God's glory right there, I think I'd follow and be more faithful to him. That's not true. Actually, God's given us something so much greater. God, Jesus has come and incarnated and shown us the glory of God himself. And he's given us the Holy Spirit that's here to identify, here to make known what the glory of God is in our life. I love Hebrews 1.3 that says, Jesus who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So this doctrine of the incarnation, it's an important part of Christmas. It's an important part of our worship of Christmas. The glory of God shown in our life. Through Jesus coming and taking on human flesh, taking on human nature. Now, um, number six on my outline is this, uh, I have the history of the doctrine of the incarnation, right? How did this come about historically? Well, officially, it, it kind of got defined. It was called the Chalcedonian Council in 450 AD, right? 450 AD after the year of our Lord. And here's three main facts from that, um, from, from, from that meeting at the Chalcedonian Council that they talked about when it came to the incarnation of Christ. It said, Christ has two distinct natures, fully human, fully deity, fully man, fully God. There is no mixture or intermingling of these two natures, but although he has two natures, he's one person. That that was basically the result that came out of that, the doctrinal formation of this so that we still have it today. And in fact, this is a test of orthodoxy. Christ has two natures, human and divine. They do not mix with each other, but yet they're together in one person. Now, this may seem like, okay, how does that do anything for us? Well, it does a lot of things for us. First off, um, what we call this oftentimes is the hypostatic union. Have you ever heard the word hypostatic union and thought, what is that? Right? I can remember one time. I was meeting with someone, this is when I, early, early years of ministry, someone was visiting with me and they said, hey, I'm thinking about joining uh, your church. And um, this is like in my really early days. I'm in youth pastor ministry and um, I'm still kind of learning theology. And the guy says, well, do you believe, what do you believe about the hypostatic union? And I was like, man, hypostatic union. They hadn't taught me this yet in Bible college. Like, what is this word? And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, that God is fully divine nature, fully human nature, together in one person. I was like, oh yeah, I believe that. He said, well, that's the hypostatic union. I was like, well, this is embarrassing. You're teaching me something. But that's what hypostatic means. It means person, right? It's hypostasis. It means person. So when we say Jesus, you'll hear this word hypostatic person. It just means that 100% God Nature, 100% man nature is in one person, the hypostatic union. God bringing these two things. It's a glorious actual doctrine, the hypostatic union. It's one of the hardest doctrines to wrap its mind around. That's why we opened a quote early with Martin Luther of just how fantastical this is. How can two natures come together in one person? I don't know. It, it's, it's far greater than I can ever imagine, but it has huge implications for our lives. But the hypostatic union is that there is two natures, one person. And we see this in Jesus' life. We see Jesus acting fully like a man, right? He gets tired. He sleeps. He has emotions. We also see him fully God. He can control the weather. He can forgive sin. These two natures are fully functional in the one person of Jesus. We see this, for instance, remember um, in Matthew 8. You don't have to turn over there, but remember when... The sea was raging, and then he calmed the storm. You can see both natures, one person. I'll read it for you real quick, Matthew 8, 23 through 27. It says this, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being uh, swamped by waves, but he was asleep. By the way, does God sleep? Like, when you have the seventh day God rested, did God rest because he was tired? No, God... How does he get tired? But yet here is Jesus who has a divine nature. He's sleeping. Why is he sleeping? Because he has a fully human nature. And he went and they awoke him saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. Good word, Lord. And then he said to them, why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he arose, he rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? It was really, they were like, wait a minute, this guy's asleep So he's a human nature, but wait a minute, he has a divine nature. He got up and he just said, that's enough. So there's two natures in one person. We call it the hypostasis, the hypostatic union. This is a glorious doctrinal truth for us and has huge implications for our life. We'll talk about those um, implications for our life. So he added to himself incarnation. He added human nature to himself. But make no mistake, he did not give up any of his divineness, right? That's some of the heresies that are out there that says, well, he didn't retain his divinity. If he took on human nature, then he had to give up some of his godness. No, he completely retained his godness and took on human nature in one person. Now, here's some, this, the truth of this hypostatic union has beautiful implications for our life. We'll tell you a couple of them, but, Here's some truths. Um, I already told you earlier that he was fully human. He did things that only humans do. For instance, he was born. He had a genealogy. He had a name, Jesus. um, Yeshua, it means Yahweh saves. He experienced fatigue. He worked as a carpenter. He loved his family, loved his mom. He went to parties. He was probably invited to a lot of parties since he could turn the water into wine, right? He worshipped, he obeyed the Father. He died, right? Right? very human things as a human he could fully be our representative where adam failed in the garden jesus actually succeeded i love the temptation i love reading about the temptation of jesus in such like in matthew 4 cuz if you look at how jesus was tempted he was tempted in a way that just like adam was tempted but yet he was completely successful Remember, if you look back in Genesis 2, you find that, I'm sorry, Genesis 3, Adam has everything perfect. He has a wife that that is responsive to him. He has plenty of food. He has no property taxes. He's got all these animals. He's got everything that a man could want. Every opportunity, and he walks with God in the cool of the day. Every opportunity to actually say yes to God, and Adam, in the perfect environment, says no. Jesus comes on the scene in the most inhospitable environment, driven into the wilderness, forty days, being tempted by Satan, onslaught, 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 right, and the um, in in the desolation of aloneness, having no nobody there to support him like a wife, and he completely obeys God. He obeys as the second Adam, where the first Adam went wrong. So much so that the Bible tells us in Romans five eighteen through nineteen. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This is saying Adam failed, but Jesus succeeded. But as for one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. I've heard people all the time say it's so unfair that we were, that we are sinners by nature. We are, we, we have original sin because of Adam. It's not fair. Nick wasn't there. He didn't take of the fruit. It's not fair. Well, then I would say it's also not fair that because of one man's obedience, I can be made righteous. See, but God has a wonderful plan and economy of what he's working with. Because Adam, because we all if we all die in Adam, we can all live in Christ. So this fully human nature means that he can fully be our representative where Adam failed. Jesus succeeded. But only that he was a fully human substitute. Jesus had to be fully human. uh, A human brought us into sin. A human had to take us out of sin. There had to be someone that could be a sacrifice. If you notice in the Old Testament, was one was one was one sheep, one lamb, one bull, one goat. Was that a sufficient sacrifice in Israel? Did they only offer the one sacrifice? That was it? No, it was it was bloody. There was a lot of sacrificing. Every year there was more sacrificing. Every day there was more sacrificing. Why? Because none of those were actually sufficient. But there came one who was fully human and fully divine. And that full humanity, he was able to make us favorable to God. The Bible often uses the word called propitiation. It means favorable. It means, you know, back in, you know, back all through time, if you were going to set out on like a sea voyage. Um pagans would do things where they would offer sacrifices to pagan gods, hoping that it would create a favorable situation for them. A uh, propitiation kind of situation. The Bible says that Jesus is our propitiation. He makes us favorable to God because of His sacrifice on the cross, because He qualifies as a result of His humanness. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers, Jesus, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and service to God to make propitiation, to make us favorable for the sins of the people. See, It's to our advantage that Jesus was fully human because he was fully human. He could be our second Adam because he was fully human. He actually qualified to take our sin and be and bear the wrath of God. Later on, we're going to eat a family meal, we're going to take communion, and one, and you're going to notice the elements we're taking are humanistic kind of elements. their bread representing the body, their juice representing the blood. These are human elements. We're saying that Jesus was human, and it took, it took a human nature to actually over it took, that had to be a part of the sacrifice. That had to be part of the incarnation. But I'll just give you a side note. The fact that he was fully human means that everything you and I go through, every temptation, struggle, he uniquely understands and knows what it's like. He, I mean, how much better? The Bible calls Jesus the great high priest. How good could a priest intercede for you if a priest fully knows what you've gone through? If a priest has fully lived your life? See, here's the great thing about Jesus The the Bible says in Hebrews 2.18, For he, Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and help, uh, mercy and grace to find help in time of need. I love the doctrine of the incarnation, the the hum the humanity of Jesus, because Jesus living a fully human life, being tempted and tired. He knows now. It doesn't mean he we we experience the same thing he experienced exactly in every. But it does mean this. He knows exactly what it's like to experience all the ramifications of the fall on mankind's life. So when we pray to him, it's not like we're praying to some God on a distant mountain that has no idea what it's like to walk in the valley. He actually knows what it's like to walk in the valley. In fact, he knows what it's like to walk in the valley while experiencing the wrath of God in our place. He is fully able. Not only that, his humanity... The human nature in one person. That humanity actually gives us a model for how life is to be lived even among ourselves. He dwelt among us. He meant for life to not be lived in a silo, but among us. Right? Jesus is a model for what life should look like. Which means our life, if we're living a fully human life, it is not a life that is alone. Now don't get me wrong. Jesus had times where he would retreat... And spend time with just God alone. Don't get me wrong. There is time for that. It's very unhealthy in all of our lives if we don't have some time set aside for the Lord. And you might be saying, well, you tell me how I'm going to do that. Because i got a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, five-year-old. Yeah, that's a really difficult one, right? It's, it's, it's called put them to bed at six o'clock, right? That's what it means. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe seven. All right, so what I'm saying is this. You create rhythms in life where you can still meet with God. It may be getting up early. It may be, it may be right when you put the kids down. It may be you swapping out, but there needs to be time with God, alone time with God. But we do find this about Jesus. He had alone time with God, but he had a lot of time around people. A lot of time. He dwelt among us. He didn't hide himself off. He his glory, his glory and what he was like was shown. And at times, he even showed you, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration got to get a peek into just some of the fullness of His glory. But He lived among us; He dwelt among us. I will tell you what's really great about church. I think, like church, is this is the one place where we can be very, like, we can live out the humanity of Jesus among ourselves. Which, which means this. Like, I love that we have that technology. I love that, like, someone's sick today, or they're homebound, or they're out of town, they can watch this video. I'm so glad. I'm so glad, but I would say this: outside of providential reasons, it's always God's will that we gather together. It's always God's will that we gather together. Why? Because the implications of the humanity of Jesus, the human nature of Jesus—he in His incarnation, He dwells among us. This is a very human thing. You know what's really funny? Um. <laughs> so at our elder meet, do you remember last week when we did our joining? Right, we we joined. We we had some. We you know we had some new members join and um, and so uh do you all remember when we were reading through and I said it says by our prayers and our giving, and then I said, "Oh, also attendance. do you remember when I kind of added that on? Uh, we were in our elders meeting, and one of our elders and you know we we're talking about it, one of our elders said, "You know that we amended that, and we actually added that to our um, church covenant about attendance you know our and and then we were all looking at each other like we did." <laughs> And then uh, David looked back on the records, and evidently we did. We just haven't updated it on all the slides. And it's really true. Like we're, We're not living as really church members if we're not actually dwelling among each other. Dwelling among each other. That's why we have these family meals. That's why we try to do dinner aids. That's why we try to have times where you can fellowship. I'm telling you, you're not fully a part of a church if all we know of a church is come in for a little bit and go out the back door. Like we're meant to actually dwell among each other. We're meant to sing together, to pray together, to confess our sins one to another. We're made to eat together. We're made to bear each other's burdens. We're meant to pray for each other. We're even meant to, Lord, help us check emails together. Man, that's the hardest thing in life for me. We're meant to dwell together. So it's the beauty of Jesus human nature. But let me give you the beauty of his divine nature. Remember, two natures, one person. Here's the beauty of his divine nature. He fully he was he claimed to be fully God, never denied it. He said I and the Father are one. No other major religious leader has ever claimed to be God themselves. Even others testified about it. When Thomas came to believe and saw the evidence, he, called, he said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. When Matthew is writing about the announcement of Jesus, he says, he quotes from Isaiah 7 and says, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus was accept. Um, he accepted worship as God. One of the biggest blasphemies in the Bible would be to say that you're God. Jesus, and you read the book of John, he over and over basically eventually lets them know, yes, I am God. I and the Father are one. In John 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You, we have the many sayings of Jesus where he basically comes in and says, I am. I am that I am. You recall in the end of John and the garden, right? In John's account, we find that actually when, when it came time to apprehend Jesus and he says who he is, you remember what happens to everybody? They fall down, right? Showing the display of his divine nature. He was fully divine. He was so divine he could actually forgive sin. In Luke 5, it says that, Jesus, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scriptures say the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus perceiving their thoughts. Side note, isn't that scary? Jesus perceiving their thoughts. Have you ever thought, okay, Jesus knows when I commit an action, but he doesn't know what I'm thinking. Yeah, he does. You know what's interesting about the Word of God? The Word of God says in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and what? Intents of the heart. You know what's really interesting? We'll never fight sin without the Word of God. Every time we open the book and we spend time in it, the Word of God is basically what the Word is doing here. The word is perceiving their thoughts. Jesus, the word made flesh, perceiving their thoughts. If you want to really want to know, how should I think you'll get it right here? Like, how will I get convicted of sin right here? Like, how will I know God's thoughts right here? How can my thoughts be transformed in the kind of transformation the Bible talks about right here? So Jesus perceiving their thoughts answered and said, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk. But Jesus lets them know. But to let you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he says to the man, rise up, take up your bed and walk. He could forgive sin. And because he's God, he has that fully divine nature, he can resist sin. It was impossible that Jesus would sin. He would have never sinned in his divine nature. If he only had a human nature that wouldn't be good for us, but that divine nature tells you that He would not sin. God cannot sin. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, "For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him." In His full divinity, He knew no sin. Tempted by sin, but uh, and this is probably a discussion for another time. But um, I I would tell you that Jesus. Had a human nature. He did not have a fallen human nature. For instance. When it came to lust. Was he tempted by lust? Yes. But not tempted in a way that he ever actually craved it like we do. Right? There was no landing pad for sin. We have a fallen human nature. I have a fallen human nature. Jesus did not have a fallen human nature. He had a full human nature. That a full human nature doesn't mean you can't be tempted by sin. Adam and Eve in the beginning had a human nature. They didn't have a fallen human nature, that a human nature that, that was susceptible that could be tempted to sin. Jesus had such a had a human nature that he was fully tempted, but yet in that divine nature, he would have never given in to it. And because he had a divine nature, not only would he not give in to sin, he would overcome sin. And because he had a divine nature, not only would he overcome sin, but he would overcome sin ultimately by resurrecting himself. Jesus said in John 2, 19, Destroy this temple, referring to himself. And in three days, does anybody know what he says? I will raise this up. Only God could raise from the dead. If I died for your sins, I'd never come back from that one. But Jesus does. And because fully, because he is fully God, all knees will bow to him. So this is the wonder of the incarnation during the season. Fully human, fully divine, fully divine. Hypostasis, one person brought together. how does that work i don 't know how does a hundred percent plus a hundred percent how does two hundred percent come together i, I don 't know, but just because i don 't completely understand it doesn 't mean that i don 't declare its truthfulness and and what 's really amazing is even the even the Trinity participates in all of this. You remember when Jesus was being baptized right? You remember the Father is pleased, Jesus is in the water, and the spirit's descending like a dove. All participants of the Trinity are in it. So, a couple of things will conclude this. Um, y'all still okay? Y'all still awake? Maybe? Are you dreaming about con queso right now? Chili con queso? I did have Velveeta with Rotel in it the other day, and I was really convicted because I enjoyed it. And it had no meat in it, so it was pagan queso. I repented. I'll do better today. Now, just in kind of closing, a couple of things. There's been a lot of heresies about the doctrine of the incarnation. I mean, her- such heresies as, and this is kind of like the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. They may come around saying, "Oh, they worship the same Jesus, but they don't believe that he's fully God and has been fully God from eternity past." Or you have other groups that will say, "Well, he wasn't a f- um, you know, he was just kind of floating around and he wasn't really fully a human at all. He just kind of appeared that way and kind of tricked everybody." No. He was fully man. The gospel writers write about him as being a fully man, but they also write about him being fully God and doing things that only God can do. You saw the miracles that Jesus does. It authenticated his ministry of who he was. I don't think that Jesus did all these miracles so that we can you know, be the next Benny Hinn. That's not, you know, and do all these false kind of healings. I mean, if Benny Hinn was a true healer, I'm saying like, why don't you go down to St. Jude and just kind of like clean house? That's because he's, it's a, it's a, she's a charlatan, but... But Jesus does some of the miracles that he does to let people know. Okay. I walked over to this guy that hadn't walked for three decades. And I said, get up. I walked over to this guy that's never seen anything since birth. Now you have sight, right? Go wash. Go wash the dirt out of your eyes. Like, why does Jesus do it? Why does he feed the multitudes in the 5,000? He does all these things to let them know only God could actually do these kind of things. Now. Now. Let me give you some concluding thoughts about this. Now you can do this. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Some concluding thoughts about the incarnation for followers of Jesus. And I would say for those who are not in Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, the incarnation is beautiful. And here's why it's beautiful. Because it teaches you how life is really to be lived. I just want to read this passage. And if you're in Christ, Jesus is your Lord and King. He is your Savior and Lord. Listen, if Jesus is your Savior, but he's not your Lord, I want you to backtrack and understand he's not your Savior. He, he has to be both, right? He's both, right? He's not just Savior and not Lord. He's Savior and Lord. Those go together. So Jesus is your Savior. He is your Lord. He is your King. The beauty of the Incarnation puts it down in Philippians 2 and what our lives should look like. I just want to read it. Let the Word of God actually refocus our souls. Look in verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. If if Jesus is fully human, fully divine, in one person, and He is your Lord and King, then our life is to be lived in the way that He lived in the incarnation, which is this: nothing was about His glory; it was it was all about the all about fulfilling the Father's will, and and and. And serving us by going to the cross. Now keep looking at this. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests. But the interests of others. Verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves. Which was also in Christ Jesus. How did Jesus think? He thinked verse 3 and 4. Nothing that Jesus did was for his own glory. But with humility he regarded others more important than himself. Look what Jesus did in verse 6. Jesus who though existing in the form of God. He was God from eternity past, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't go like, I can't take on human flesh, human nature. I can't do it. I can't leave the grand sins of heaven. I can't do it. He didn't grasp onto it. Even at certain times, Martin Lloyd Jones, a pastor from the past, would. Has, has been quoted many times and just saying he, you can even see that certain times he didn't avail himself of all his divine rights and privileges as a part of his incarnation. He at times limited himself. Like when you read about Jesus not knowing the day nor the hour, that's showing in his incarnation. He was limiting himself to the time of his return. But he empties himself. He doesn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He doesn't go after his rights which is completely opposite of the way we are live life now. You know, most of the time when you talk to people and you get counsel from people, a lot of times everybody's telling us to get our rights, to get what's ours. We need to build up ourselves. That's the opposite of what the incarnation tells us. Jesus empties himself. He doesn't empty himself of his deity. He empties himself of the rights and privileges of the position he holds so that he can come and take on human nature and die the death that we deserve to die. Verse 7, he empties himself. Taking on the form of a slave and being made in likeness of men and being found in appearances of man, he humbles himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For us, the humble life of Jesus that's about serving the glory of God in others... Is a model for how we live life. We do not live life to build up our self esteem. We do not live life for getting what's ours. We do not live life for what's best for me. Our life is to be lived in such a manner. It's about the glory of God and the good of others. Now my last name is Brown. Did y'all know my last name was Brown? Were y'all aware of that? And I think UPS stole something from me years ago. They have this slogan. What can Brown do for you? I think they stole it from me. That's what God has called me to do. What can Brown do for you, right? That's literally how our lives are to be lived. Nick Brown should live his life every day to the glory of God and for the good of others. And it's, Lord, what can Brown do for you? I know your last name may not be cool enough that it flows so well and easy. By the way, look at verse 9 and 10. You want to know why some of your joy and my joy is zapped in life? It's not that God hadn't done his part is that when we don't live the Christ-like life of humility in verse 5 through 8, as a result of what the incarnation has brought into our life, we don't get to experience 9 and 10. It says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him a known name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those in heaven and earth and under the earth. Verse 11, Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has called us to live this kind of a life, a humble life. It's about the glory of God and the good of others because this is what the incarnation actually does. This is the model of it. It What's interesting. God says, if you exalt yourself, what does Jesus say will happen? He'll what? Humble you, right? But if you'll humble yourself, what will God do? Exalt. So you see here in the text where it says, because of Jesus humility, right, God has exalted him, right, and given him a name that above every name and every knee will bow to this name, exaltation. You know, one of the biggest problems for those of us who are in Christ is we're not living that exalted life. I'm not talking about making much of yourself. I'm talking about a life of joy and pleasure and enjoying him because it could be that all of our life is being lived for our own glory. Now, the last is this, that's for believers, the Incarnation. What the Incarnation shows you if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, is that you obviously need a Savior. Why would God leave the grandstands of glory and come and take on the human flesh just so he could give you an example? No, it's because you need a Savior. Man's greatest need is not information, one writer said. Therefore, if that was true, God would just send an educator. Man's greatest need is not technology. If that's true, then God would have just sent a scientist. Man's greatest need is not money. If that's true, then God would have sent an economist. If, God, if man's greatest need was pleasure, then God would have sent an entertainer. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Our greatest need is a savior. Now, there's something floating around right now in this idea that, well, the reason people don't come to Christ is because they don't have enough evidence of who Jesus is. And sometimes that's true. There's some people, I find it a small percentage, that they just want the evidence like Thomas, like the honest Thomas, or we call it Doubting Thomas 1. They just want the evidence to know, should I worship Jesus as Lord and King? Should I? But you know, a lot of people, the reason that's not their reason. They may claim that's a reason. That's not their reason. Jesus is not their savior. I'll tell you why. You know, and if you want to turn to it, you can, but I'm going to read it for you. Here's why people who are, if you're hearing my voice right now, online here, it doesn't matter, and you've never bowed the knee to Jesus, he is not your savior. It's not because God has not given you enough evidence. There's so small percentages of people like that. Here's the real reason why. John three, nineteen through twenty says this. The light, Jesus, has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, Jesus, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, Jesus, and does not come to the light, who is Jesus, lest his deeds be exposed. Why do people not come to Jesus? Why can someone reject Jesus? Why do people say no to Jesus? small percentage of people is they don't have enough evidence. And if if that's you, you've got tons of people around you that are willing to help you with that. But the real reason is because if a person comes to Jesus, their deeds get exposed. In the end, people don't come to Jesus because they love darkness. They love their sin. They love the joy that they think it pays off and gives. But you're playing around in a place that's mud pies when God's giving you something so much better. Now, I'll close with this story. I've read it just about every Christmas, but I think it's so beautiful. Um, Worship team, go ahead and make your way up on stage. I love this story. It's a, a story by Paul Harvey. I've told this a million times, but I love telling it Christmas every year. It's the story of a man, um, It's a story of a man who is not really a Scrooge. He was a kind and decent, good man. He was generous to his family, upright in his dealings with men, and he came to believe that all this incarnation stuff that churches proclaim at Christmas time just wasn't true. He couldn't make sense. And he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the story of Jesus about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going to go with you to Christmas Eve service this year. He said said he'd feel like a hypocrite going, that he'd much rather stay at home, but he would wait up for them. So he stayed home and his family went to midnight Christmas Eve service. Maybe we should do that, right? Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier, and then went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by the thudding sound, then another and then another, sort of a thump or thud. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against the living room window, but he went to the front door to investigate, and he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in the storm in a desperate search for shelter. They tried to fly through the large landscape window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures lie there and freeze, so he remembered that the barn where the children stabled their ponies, that would provide warm shelter if he could direct the birds to it. So he quickly put on his coat and his galoshes and trampled through the deep snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide, turned on the light, but the birds did not come in. So he figured food would entice them. So he hurried back to the house, fetched breadcrumbs, sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. He tried to catch them. He tried to shoo them in the barn, walking around them, waving his arms. And said they just scatter in every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. And then he realized that they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a stranger, a terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how, he said, because any move he made tended to frighten them, confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. If only I could be a bird, he thought to himself, and I could mingle with them, speak their language, Dwell among them, then I could tell them not to afraid Then I could show them the way to safe and warmth. Then I could get them into the warm barn But I have to be one of them so that they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, he understood what the incarnation was all about. If you're not in Christ, this is why Jesus came. He's not just an example. He's a Savior who came and dwelt among us and lived that human life. So that he could bring you into the glory of God. Why are we rejecting him still. When there's a warm place to go. Would you stand and pray. Thank you for this season. Where we get to step back. And think about the divine nature. The human nature. This one person. May this season. Protect us from false teaching. Protect us from heresy. But also. Would it bring us back to the marvelous light of what you've done. This glorious. Glorious. This glorious truth, may it mesmerize us, may it cause us to silence our phones and just gaze into the heavens, gaze into your word and contemplate deeply the love of the Father has for us. Bring someone to Jesus. May we be transformed and renewed and live lives to the glory of God in service to others as a result. And God's people said, Amen.